Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we pair two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am one of your hosts. My name is Dave Gurney, and I'm here with Joe Hilliard and Carlos Cooper. And we're here to bring you some some love in the form of drinkable liquids and uh, celluloid projected on a screen, although nowadays it's more digital video files playing across our screens. Um, but let's let's start it off with that drink. And the drink that we have picked to start out today's episode is one that I'm excited to have. Um, gosh, what we always do this. Weldworks. We've had Weldworks before. We yeah. have not. My Oh, okay. I know we've had it off mic, but um, okay, well, great. This is exciting. We're, we're having our first Weldworks beer on mic. This is Weldworks Brewing out of Greeley, Colorado. This is their beer that they call Grandma J's Strawberry Rhubarb Pie Berliner. Uh, it is brewed with strawberry, rhubarb, milk sugar, vanilla, and graham cracker. Boy, I'm getting excited and hungry just reading those ingredients and i know you guys already have some in your glasses so i'm gonna go ahead and get mine going all right i gotta be honest with you all i smell is a rhubarb rhubarb strawberry pie i mean this nose is uh, adver is just as advertised on the side of the can yeah i can even smell i can even smell the crust this is one that <laughs> well, uh I have been very eager to get to. I, it was one that I think I had. Uh, I saw it come up on an unnamed uh, <laughs> beer delivery app, and I texted right. David, and I was like, "I need this." Mm -hmm. yeah, but then David took it. He, he went the extra mile and was like, "Okay, I'll, I, I'm going to get a, a third because we got to do it on the show." That's right. If we're going to have a beer this good, let, let's let's uh, memorialize it. Let's let's get it recorded and let our listeners hear about it carlos you delivered a beer to both of our homes today i'll do the same sometimes but david brings the the david brings the most heat and it's then tells accurate. us and then tells us to stick it in our fridge and not drink it don't even look at it until we decide <laughs> when it's gonna fit into a a, a perfectly themed episode right. uh, but it's it does smell delicious it's a, a very hazy I guess not very hazy for a balloon. I'm looking forward to enjoying the champagne of the North. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is exciting just based on the nose, like you said. Not as much. I was hoping for a little bit more of a red hue. Um, I, I get a hint of redness. The reason was I thought that this might be at least a little bit of a tie-in with, with the uh, violent themes that we have in this week's uh, film pairings. But I know you were going to talk a little bit, Joe, about the first film we're starting with. Well, who doesn't love the Coen brothers amongst us? And uh, in 2007, two big films, one from the Coen brothers, one from the director we'll talk about in the second half of the show, burst onto the scene, burst onto the screen, burst into all of the awards play. And we're going to do their No Country for Old Men, uh, written, directed by Joel and Ethan uh, Coen. is based on Cormac McCarthy's novel of the same name. Uh, Josh Brolin... You might call him the central character, plays Llewellyn Moss, a hunter in desolate West Texas who stumbles upon the aftermath of what appears to be a drug deal gone bad. A ring of vehicles in the desert. They're all shot up. Everyone's dead except for one guy who's hanging on to life. They even shot the dog. Mm. Uh, and then 
the, the truck bed is filled with, you know, bags of drugs. And then he tracks a dead man sitting under a shade tree nearby with a satchel filled with $2 million, and he takes it home. Um, he goes back to try to maybe assist that dying man, and that's when he gets in the crosshairs of Anton Chigurh, uh, played by Har Javier Bardem, who's a professional lunatic, who's <laughs> been hired to find that money. And then Tommy Lee Jones rounds out the, the main three players playing Sheriff Ed Tom Bell, who's tracking them both. He's tracking Anton to stop his killing spree, and he's tracking Llewellyn to attempt to save his life from this madman. Um, that, you know, that there is so much to it. It's a very layered film. It's a gorgeously shot film. The acting is incredible. I'm laying a few cards on the table, but, uh, dive right in guys. What, what did y'all, <laughs> what did y'all think of this? So, you know, th for me, this is a revisitation. This was a film that I was highly anticipating when it came out. I was, I was already fully, uh, indoctrinated into the, uh, you know, film fandom of the Coen brothers. Uh, I, I know that they're somewhat specific in, in what they do, but I, but I largely like that thing that they do or the things that they do. And knowing that this was going to be one of their darker, more violent films, I'm always curious to see why they would take that turn. Less familiar with Cormac McCarthy, um, at the time. And so going into it, I, you know, I had high hopes and it really, it delivered then, it delivers now. I mean, this is a, a slow-burning kind of film in a certain sense. I mean, they, they do hit you with some action early on. I mean, Chigurh, as he gets introduced, they establish him as, you know, Joe used the term lunatic, you know, sociopath, whatever, like somebody who just has no regard for human life and seems to not even take glee, but just see it as his mission to rain terror upon the land essentially and and you know and and also this kind of bizarre fascination that he seems to have with um fate and in the odds and all you know with the coin tosses and all that so like really creating this interesting character that i think even more so than brolin who is really good in this um you know that i don't want to take anything away from him and jones as as the sheriff uh, ed tom bell character um that you know, Shiger, the 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 really the villain in this film to me is the kind of magnetic star of the film, in a way that uh, is it really makes this film feel elusive in in a strange sense because he's not an antihero. We don't spend enough time with him to really learn anything about him beyond his you know his outward behavior, and yet it's so compelling every time he's on screen. It's a film that unsettles me with how much I look forward to seeing his scenes. Because really, everything about that character I should hate. Correct. He is very good in it. <laughs> Some very unfortunate hair and makeup, I would say. But other than but that... Doesn't it, but it's sort of amazing that despite that... I mean, because I agree with you. Like, the look of the character, it doesn't seem like he should be able to pull this off. But it's am amazing how he does. Yeah, it is. I think maybe it's that... Maybe his poor hair decisions the characters <laughs> adds to how unsettling he is like you're automatically kind of on guard when you see him just because you're like why are you dressed like this? or why do you look like this <laughs> right uh i did think josh brolin was great in it too I, i'm a i'm a strong advocate of josh brolin um i big fan 
Yeah. This was sort of one of his bigger, I mean, and maybe there was something before this, but I feel like this really touched off that sort of second wave of his career after he had had success as a young actor in the 80s, right, with The Goonies and, and a few other films, and then seemed to kind of fall off the radar in the 90s, but th- this definitely announced him back in the game. Yeah, it, it, it helped his career take off. Uh, supporting roles by Woody Harrelson as a second uh, I guess what private detective or professional who's mm-hmm. hired to track down the money. He meets a, a grisly end by it's off screen, but by uh, sugar. Uh, you've also got um, I'm forgetting blanking on her name. Help me out. The wife of Kelly uh, McDonald. Yeah, she is. Fa- she's fantastic in Boardwalk Empire. She's fantastic yeah. in this. Um, and what we're watching is basically a chase movie and the procedure of the chase and what each character is chasing. You know, for Tommy Lee Jones, a, a weathered sheriff from the area, he he's procedurally trying to piece the clues together. To, to find either of the men or both for Llewellyn, it's how do I keep this money? And then right. I discovered that there's a responder in the, uh, the, the case, and that's how Javier Bardem has tracked me to this point. So if I, yeah. lose, if I lose it, then will I have a chance? You know, genuine suspenseful moments in both of the hotel scenes, the hotel where he's trying to hide the cash up, or where he does hide the mm-hmm. cash up in the air ducts, and then realizes that he needs to get a second hotel room. And then there's another group of, of, of Mexicans that are, uh, and this is on border Texas. So I mean that in the truest sense of the word, come over to, to also everyone's after that cash. And then for Bardem, of course, it's finding that money. Uh, we haven't talked about his use of the cattle air kill gun to not only kill a human or two, but, you know, bust open, locks and uh that's how we're introduced to him is that he's got this odd way of killing but then when he needs to he'll pull out the biggest automatic rifle out of a, a bag with a silencer the you know the size of two 16 ounce beer cans taped on top of one another i mean he dispatches effectively and the mm-hmm. chase and the procedure of the chases of all three men the how it's made of it all I, it's one of the reasons why i love the movie my my plan for this film was to let you guys talk about it and hopefully I would glean something from it uh, that okay. I didn't in the viewing of it. Um, but I didn't feel affected by this movie in any way. That's fascinating. I didn't I didn't find it. I didn't dislike it by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. But at the end of it, I was kind of just like, all right. Was was this your first viewing? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I will tell you, uh, you know, and I I hate it when people tell me this, but it's the truth for me. Sometimes it takes me two and sometimes three. And and the film we'll talk about in the second half is is and was the same way. But now I've seen No Country for Old Men four or five times, and it gets deeper and richer with every single viewing. Um, There's a scene at the very end, uh, you know, spoiler alert. Everyone dies, and uh, I mean, no, Tommy uh, Jones. no, no, no. Uh, Llewellyn is <laughs> killed, dispatched off screen, which I thought was very effective. You walk. Yeah, I in, love that. I love yeah, that choice they made. That you don't. You've see been spending so much. Yeah, you've been spending so much time with him. You're invested in his success. Oh, I am, and then you know, I mean, it was a foregone conclusion. Anton will, uh, you know. Uh, 
outsmart this guy who's not the smartest, although he has a kind of a, a real common sense and a real ability to, to stay alive and, and keep moving. But um, the last five minutes of the film is uh, Tommy Lee Jones with his wife at the breakfast table talking about some dreams he had had last night. And I, I watched that scene three times. I think I've watched it twice in my previous viewing because and it's a very controversial scene. Some people find that it's too open-ended. Some people find that it's a beautiful kind of coda to all the violent action with just him coming to terms with the idea that, you know, there is no country for old men. You know, that that when people stopped saying ma'am and sir, that was the beginning of the end, the beginning of the end of a decline in civility. And it has brought us to this violent, violent place. That little five minute, you could pull it out and watch it as a five minute short film and the acting and the, the framing and the it's, it's 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 a nice scene of a beautiful whole film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this this is. um Let's say this is this is Cohen Brothers in understatement mode. This is Cohen Brothers pulling some kind some some strategic punches. Uh, the the scene that you you just mentioned, Joe, where we don't see uh, Llewellyn get shot, but we just see the aftermath. There there are other choices throughout. Even the death scenes that we do see, um, they aren't as action driven as a lot of other violent death scenes would be. They're kind of matter of fact. They are just these sort of blunt hits of reality that you get um, without the juiciness of the spectacle. Now, I'd say the most spectacular moment is probably the chase out of the and through the hotel and onto the street between Llewellyn and Anton Chigurh that you kind of get some of that more classic. But even that is fairly restrained. I mean, it's basically two men Per, you know, one being pursued, the other one kind of trying to weasel his way out. Um, so I think, you know, it, it is a film that kind of holds back a little bit in this way. And and I think, at least the way I feel about it and watching it again, I've, I've felt pretty similar to how I did the first time, is that it's really just trying to get us to kind of take a moment and think about, like, this this violence that we do to one another and and for what. And I mean... You know that Llewellyn is being driven by this self-interest, this money, right? This idea of what this money can get him and, and his wife and, and what it might be able to bring in into their lives. Um, you know, Chigurh is is the total enigma where you just like he's he's somehow tied into this organized crime element. They, they bring him in, but then he kills off the people who bring him in. And like, so who his, I mean, he's for himself is basically right. what he is, but what does he want? He seems to have no clear motivate. Like, I mean, he wants money to what retire to some Caribbean Island. I don't, he doesn't look like a guy who would enjoy being on a beach or what. I mean, does he just, you get the sense maybe he just takes pleasure in killing, but you don't really see him take pleasure in the killing. So because he, because he will up. he will allow the coin, the coin toss, to allow him not to have to kill in that moment. Right. So he has is some it, kind of sense of there's a weird like cosmic fairness or something. Like you know there is he's giving these things a chance, and he's not going to be the one who dictates, but he's going to let fate dictate what it is that that happens to these people, um, which makes it all the more powerful when McDonald kind of, you know, her, her Carla Jean character denies him that that opportunity. Uh, but, you know, the sort of moral center of the film is is Ed Tom Bell and just this guy who, like, has a sense of 
what's right and wrong. He wants to protect these people who he sees as relatively innocent, even though he understands the guy took money from a botched drug deal and ran away with it. He's like, he's he wants to try to protect these people, and he senses this, you know, almost unfathomable evil that's pursuing them in Anton Chigurh, and he's just not able to. He can't do it. You know what I mean? Like, it, and it it seems like this kind of statement on, you know, there is this evil out there that despite our best efforts, it it just is going to persist and it's going to move through and and it's going to seem. Now, I think there's also something there in that it's maybe intensified. It's gotten worse. I mean, it's set in 1980. It's called No Country for Old Men. It's kind of this reference of his old codes don't match up with the new codes, whatever, you know, however we think about it. But to me, it's more just a meditation on our inability to be to understand the motivations behind what we would see as evil and that there is just some stuff that goes on out there that we can't control. And and, and it's sort of despite our best efforts, it you know, it's going to do what it does, which is a chilling and sort of, you know, I get there's there's kind of a nihilistic bent to it in, in well, a way. because the evil is operating under a code that not only I don't subscribe to, but I can't even comprehend. Right. Right. And that's what and and I. And especially having Bardem turn in the performance that he does with this character, I think that's what sells it. Because it doesn't make sense, it shouldn't make sense, and yet it's magnetic and it's compelling and it's and it's just so strange. Again, the haircut, the the whole way he carries himself, <laughs> his his slight limp there. I mean, the way he reacts at it at the end with the car accident. I mean, everything that this character does doesn't compute for me and I'm just drawn to it and, it, right. and, and not, no, not in a way like I admire it, but I'm just fascinated. Yeah. I'd wager a very high ABV expensive beer, Carlos, that if you watch this a second time in six months, you might come, you, you would probably come away with a deeper appreciation. Well, I see. I mean, well, so to go back to something that David had said, Anton Chigurh is widely uh, viewed as the best representation of a psychopath in film the cavalier nature with which he uh approaches death and murder he's very unaffected by it which i think like when you look at somebody that's more like sadistic it's easier to understand because they are getting some kind of pleasure right. out of the evil right. they're doing and so there's some clear motivation there but someone who is truly psychopathic and is completely incapable of feeling the things that human beings feel because that's so far removed from our human experience. It's so, it is very interesting and captivating the way that David was describing. It is, you're interested in that. You're wondering what is, ha what is happening inside this person's head. And yeah. it's so far removed from anything that you can reference in your own experience that that is one of the things that I think draws us to that. And I did yeah. think that he was great. And I do love Josh Brolin. And I like I enjoyed watching this movie. I'll say yeah. that like one of the things that I like the most about it is the uh, kind of sparseness and like like you said, they're pulling a lot of punches. It's a little more subdued of an offering from Joel and Ethan Cohen. It's very quiet, uh, mm. which for like an more the score, you must have appreciated some of that. I think this I is like some the score. Of, uh, yeah, I mean it's it's very restrained, yes, very very yeah. restrained, uh, and a lot of times there is no score, and mm -hmm. it's just still and quiet uh, for a lot of it, and 
I think that makes it very captivating and it adds some of that kind of suspense because you're just like waiting for something to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like when your kids are in the other room and when it gets quiet, that's when you need to worry. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of yeah. like that thing, like the quiet is eerie. Uh, mm-hmm. And, but I, th- I just think the only reason that I maybe didn't have this like resounding, you know, uh, reaction to it is that I just, the things you're saying make sense, but it didn't beg those questions from me after watching it. After I watched it, I was just like, okay, yeah, cool. And I, it didn't, it didn't bring anything to mind of like, Oh, I wonder what this means or whatever. And I'm just like, yeah, Yeah. shit's fucked up. I get it. I'm moving on. Uh, (laughs) you know, like I, yeah, yeah. But, and also I think the idea that it's the eighties and things are changing and they've got bones in their noses and their hairs dyed or whatever. Not only is that just so okay, boomer, but it's also, I just don't think that there's enough there to right. really drive that point home well, or to really well, i mean I, I the last scene does it a little bit but at that point i feel like it's a little too little too late to try to make a point as far as that is concerned and um, i mean i like that scene you're referencing there where you know uh he's meeting with the older lawman or whatever and and he's kind of spouting that stuff off about yeah punk rockers hanging out in town you know yeah. dyed hair like that that to me was I, I thought it was very funny and i also it thought funny. it was a nice it was a nice gesture where it's like okay this guy's so distracted by people looking different that he doesn't recognize that there's this kind of rise of these cartels and there's this like truly nefarious kind of activity that's going on he he's too focused on teenagers who have nose rings you know what i mean yeah. and, and stuff like that so you know i i get i get where you're coming from um I do, you know, I, th- I think it's it, it it was fun going back to this film, but not in like a sense where I was like giddy watching it. But it, it is a very particular tone of film mm-hmm. um, that you know I, d- I don't think I see very much. It stands out for me with the Coens. I mean, like most of their yeah. films, oh, yeah. even, even ones that go dark, like Fargo or you know, uh, um, or even something that dabbles with the Western even more so than this, which, you know, this one, a lot of people kind of make the argument, this is kind of a interpretation of a Western. I don't see that so much. I think I of it a little bit more. This is like, the, I read somewhere like, this is, this is it. This is the Western. We're done. Like the, you know, this is, yeah, you I know, I don't really buy it. I mean, I, I can see the iconography is there of the West and um, the wide John Ford landscapes and stuff. Yeah, and and you know, and and in a certain sense, you know, Llewellyn is this kind of skilled gunfighter. I mean, he's a hunter, you know, so he's got these, and he's former military. He's got this kind of there. There's something there. I'm not saying that there there's nothing, but you know, I compare it to like True Grit, which you know is their reinterpretation of an. I think a much more. Um, straightforward kind of Western story, uh, and even though it has its own quirkiness, but it, a lot, you know, I think of the Coens often with those kind of outrageous characters that we get out of their films, um, or even something like Inside Lewin Davis, which, as I think about it, Llewellyn Lewin, there, there's something there, right? They like this <laughs> kind of, they like that sound in a name. Um, where you know even though that film is kind of dark it is dark in its own way there's there's a silliness there that never quite fully takes hold in this film like they never let it like sugar could have been silly especially given the haircut and it's almost like it's almost like 
I, I haven't read enough. I should, Joe. You you do better research than I do for these. What, did you hear? Did you read anything about the haircut choice? Was that something imposed upon Bardem, or was that something he worked with them to? I, I, I don't know the answer. And on these uh, Skype meetings, we'll sometimes begin to talk over one another. So I didn't try to interject while y'all were in it. I think 1980 plays a part in it as well. Uh, right. A little bit of a part of it as well. But I think I, I would imagine, and, and why don't we maybe come to this in a future episode sometime if we do the research, that it's it was a character choice, you know, a, a character choice to make him right. off-putting. But I, yeah, but it's almost like they gave themselves a challenge to like, let's use a silly haircut on this guy and yet we'll still make him one of the most frightening characters you've ever seen. Like, <laughs> we will overcome this stumbling block and he won't become a cartoon character. He will be something just totally scary and, and threatening. Um, I don't know. So, so there's a lot, I think, that this film does that impresses me. It impressed me then. It, it impresses me now. Um, I, I think it deserved the accolades it got, right? So we, we, we started this episode in part with this one because we felt like this was the one that really sort of uh, claimed the, the, the mantle in 2007, right? This was uh, a big Oscar winner. And, yeah. and, I be and I believe deservedly so. Uh, maybe someday young Carlos can understand and appreciate this movie's <laughs> beauty and glory. Yeah. Well, I, I can understand uh, wh where he's coming from. And, Our and, young Padawan. Yeah. And I so think it was fun to, get to go back. Not Padawan. So where does Carlos, our young Padawan, fall on this Weldworks Grandma J's Strawberry Rhubarb Pie Berliner? So good. Yeah? I really like it. It lived up? It did. It's worth the wait. I like it. I like it a lot. It's got a good mouthfeel. I like it. The, the milk sugar in there kind of boosts it a little bit so it's not you know berliners tend to be kind of thin which is fine and easy to throw back this one i'm having to sip on more almost like chew it a little bit it's yeah. it's kind of nice if i have any critique i'm actually getting some of the rhubarb flavor in there which is impressive i don't know that i've ever had a beer that incorporated rhubarb i wish there was a tiny bit more strawberry there it's in the nose but it's i'm not getting nose, it yeah. in, the, in the flavor as much it, that's a small criticism on what is otherwise an incredible beer. I agree with you, but like, here's, I don't know if I've ever like articulated this on the podcast before, and it is a thing that I take some contention with when I hear people critique beers. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times, and it obviously it varies a little bit depending on what, you know, the beer is what they were going for. I think something like this that has so many layers and so much stuff going on i think the strawberry on the nose is good with me i'm good with that that's good like that I, is that is a part of like the smell is a part of like tasting something it like mm -hmm. all like works yeah. together to uh -huh. create an experience and the fact that the strawberry isn't on my palate as much as it is on the nose of the beer i'm good with that i think i think that that is i, I fine i think the student is now the master. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I would say that uh, that's why dr the proper drink, uh, the glass glassware is important. I mean, you want to get your nose in that beer so that you're using all of the senses. Look, this is look at that. Look beer. at that. 
this is a fear. <laughs> it's, it's, it, that's the kind of mask I can get behind. You're even covering your nose. I've got a big nose, but it fits in that glass. Um, this is one of those beers that is not as good when you drink it out of the can. You need the full aroma. You're right. Of right. Yeah. yeah. I would say never drink say, out of the can. When you say Berliner, Berliner Weiss, I'm 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 expecting a Christmas that's not here. I'm just going to chalk that up to the complete amount of ingredients that they used, including the milk sugar. It's going to yeah. take a little bit of that away. So no points lost for that. That's the only tiny, mild criticism. Otherwise, I'm, it's unanimous. This is a stellar, stellar beer that uses the flavors really, really well. Yeah, I will agree it's not as crisp as a Berliner normally would be, but I think that maybe the tartness kind of brings that balance into play because there is some tartness there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you can tell they spent a lot of love and care to get this beer just the way that it is. Oh, yeah. yeah, I like and it. And Weldworks has that reputation. Like I say, I know Juicy we've had bits, some others. Right, that's the Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, which I th- which I think is the one I thought we had had on the podcast. I thought we but had, I guess had too, but it might have just been yeah. off my. Um, but anyway, you know. So, according so to that's, my according to my extensive know, database, we have not had Weld Works prior to now. I, I, I trust you. that it was probably it was probably one of those off mic when we used to do this thing together and we would drink one or two before or after what. Well, <laughs> yes, I'm sure that's what happened. We've yeah. been Carlos's parlor with cigars and a couple of pre gamers. Ah, the good old days. <laughs> yeah, who's the brewery that tells you what cigar to pair it with? Oh yeah, that was. God, there's I don't one. remember. We've had a few of theirs. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that was a good first half, guys. Uh, enjoyed getting to revisit that film. I'm really excited to revisit this next film after the break. Question mark? <laughs> were we recording? Did you get that? I did. Yeah, we are back. Wow. Um, the- we are back, and we are going to talk about a, another film as we do. First, uh, we are going to open another beer. So this is a beer that my wife's cousin, Austin, shouts out to Austin. That's the homie. Um, I don't know if there's a word for what that makes him to me, but um, he... Uh, helped me procure this beer um, from Hop Squad Brewing Company. They are new. This is their first year in business. Uh, unfortunately for them, it's not a great, not great tough time. Year. Yeah, tough yeah. year. But they've got stuff in cans, um, and there were three different beers that he had uh, given to me. One of them was a Smash IPA. One was a Pilsner that was very, very good. Um, Actually, the Pilsner was fantastic. And this is the Cafe de Ola Porter. It is 6.5%, 15 IBUs, used with crystal or brewed with crystal hops. Um, a lot of their cans, from what I noticed, had a good amount of information about the different malts and hops and things that are that are used in there. Um, but yeah, I, I'm excited to try this. Of the three that I got from him, this is the only one I hadn't tried yet. 
Um, it's our first right. it's our first porter in quite a long while. Yeah, we haven't had one in a minute. And I, I wanted to bring this one because I wanted to make Joe uh, drink a dark beer in the summer because he's always going on about how he <laughs> I'm sitting in our office area in air conditioning. I'm looking forward to this porter very much. If I was outside in the 108-degree uh, heat index, I probably would want another one of those rhubarb strawberries. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I, dark I, is dark is oil. Yes, uh, very appropriate to get into uh, <laughs> our next film. Um, yes, so this brewery just opened in January, um, and you know, uh, excited to give this a go. Uh, maybe they're the next big thing. Um, Austin yeah. had had grabbed it. I forgot to mention because it's uh, like down the street from his house. Uh, Nice. close to where he lives and so he's like oh, okay i'll stop in and grab some stuff um, it seems like wherever you live in austin there's got to be some brewery there is 100 percent <laughs> a brewery close to everyone's house which is nice so um yeah i'm excited to try this first offering from hop squad that uh i've ever had so that that is fun but you're right blood pours black um got a little bit i'm you know cafe de ola I'm, i know there's probably some sort of coffee element here if not actual coffee like trying to play up the the coffee notes of a porter um getting a little a bit a little bit of that on the nose but not as heavily as i've had on some others uh but but this will be fun to sip so i also say it's perfectly carbonated this is it looks really delicious mm. Well, the the oil tie-in here makes sense because our second 2007 uh, entry here, another film that was uh, that was nominated for many Oscars, Paul Thomas Anderson's "There Will Be Blood." Um, our first Paul Tom and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson discussion on this program. Which is kind of shocking. I, I know uh, J- Joe has remarked before that that he feels like that is a sort of gap that we've had, um, and and not having addressed any of his films. And I think since we've been doing the podcast, Phantom Thread did that come out right at the beginning of when we were doing the podcast, or was that the year before? That was right before. I think it was before. Yeah. So we haven't really had the opportunity to do one as it's in wide release initially. Um, but still, to, to have not paired at this point with, with something else, a Paul Thomas Anderson film, but maybe that's a testament to how much his films tend to stand alone. I, um, I, I will stretch the limits of our pairing creativity to get Boogie Nights into almost everything. <laughs> we're, doing the, we're doing the new Benji film. Look, can we pair it with Boogie Nights? <laughs> we do a doggy um, style in there at least one time. Oh, <laughs> my God. Oh, God. <laughs> Whew. It's too early Maybe for I'll this show. That one. Yeah, the, so, so there will be blood. Uh, qu- quite uh, different than Boogie Nights in terms of uh, setting. Uh, <laughs> it's is not uh, about the uh, porn industry in 1970s and 1980s Southern California. It instead is a film set around the turn of the century, um, following the turn of the the 19th into the 20th century, I should say, um, following a character Daniel Plainview played by the unforgettable, the the indelible Daniel Day-Lewis um, in, in one of his, probably his mo- one of his most iconic screen roles, along with like Bill the Butcher and uh, 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 Christy from uh, My Left Foot. The, anyhow, here he's a prospector 
who is, you know, looking to make his fortune and, you know, kind of looking for whatever is in the ground that he can pull out. And pretty quickly in in the beginning of the film, we see him toiling away and we see him striking oil. And then that kind of becomes the driving force of this picture in a lot of ways where he is seeking oil and in particular um, getting his getting the rights to a particular oil field and he becomes kind of entangled with this family who has twin sons um, what both played by Paul Dano uh, one of whom is a bit of, is is a preacher essentially and so the a lot of the film revolves around this kind of relationship that they strike up this push pull between them the religious man the man of the cloth and uh, Daniel Plainview, the man of capital, right? The man, the man pursuing his uh, his fortune. So um, that that sets the stage. I think you know the, this again w- was a much uh, celebrated film at the time. Um, it, w- what did you guys think? I mean, I I, I don't want to uh, jump right into my feelings. I want to hear what you think. Well, I don't mind going first. I'll speak very generally and I'll play all of my cards up top. This movie is a masterpiece. This is easily a top 15 film of all time for me. It's a film that ages very, very well with repeated viewings. This is my fourth or fifth time to watch it. And just like No Country for Old Men, it gets broader and deeper. There are new things to find. There are new nuances to appreciate. And I look forward to talking about the specifics. But at its base, in a year, 2007, the top grossing films of 2007. We see these two films in the marketplace. The top grossing films, Spider-Man 3, Shrek 3, Transformers. Spider-Man <laughs> 3? Uh, one of the pirates, that was one, a rough one. One of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, one of the Harry Potter movies. There are still a place in the marketplace for movies like this, which are art and powerful and show what movies sometimes can be and do. You know, it's interesting you say that because I was watching it and I was like, I can't believe this movie got made. Because <laughs> it is, I mean, uh, it. I can't, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I remember this year and I remember these films as far as like, I guess, like, I don't know, seeing trailers for them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I. You know, wasn't I was, let's see, 2007. I was 15 or something like mm-hmm. that. So I wasn't like really in it and like you know going right. to the theater to see these kinds of things. But when I was watching this movie, I was like, this, this wasn't a small budget. This wasn't like a micro budget indie movie. Like there was some no. money behind this, and I just looked it up, and it was a 25 million dollar film, which is less than I had expected actually. Um, yeah, but. Uh, you know, we talk. We uh, next week we'll talk a, a little bit about how um, there's not the the middle tier film doesn't exist anymore. Uh, there's big box office blockbuster yeah, yeah. spectaculars, right, right. and then little tiny indie the Spider-Man movies. Spider-Man three, that, yeah, yeah, and then little tiny indie movies that may catch some mainstream mm-hmm. appeal. Uncut Gems, um, The Witch, Little Miss yeah. Sunshine, The Lighthouse, uh, yeah. The big sick would probably fit in there somewhere. Yeah. Although that's probably maybe more in between. But anyway, um, but yeah, I was surprised this movie got made because it's very obtuse. Uh, <laughs> it's it's um, it's a slow burn. It yeah. is very slow burn. It's a slow burn. It. I mean, there is a huge stretch of that first portion of it where uh, not a not a word is said. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a very which 
you know, as I've said before on the podcast, I love when a filmmaker uses the medium yeah the way yeah. that it should be used which is give me give me visual stuff like not everything needs to be said to me i don't need everything explained to me show right. me you know right um, and paul thomas anderson definitely does that in this movie i fucking hate paul dano in this uh oh, not oh no not not his performance but i hate his character he's such a oh, cunt and well you're I, not supposed to yeah i, I know did. and but it yeah. oh man uh, one one thing i will say is paul dano's character in this film scares me more than javier bardem in no country for old men is that right because you know anton chagrin is evil this man yeah. thinks he's righteous and just but is more it's and that makes him more sinister to me like i just ah, he just was very is a very unsettling individual yeah. to me um and I mean, they're like the the score to this movie is fucking great. Like, yeah, it is Johnny amazing. Is, yeah, yeah. Uh, I definitely put it above No Country, and I mean, because so. And one thing we didn't mention. I mean, these two head to head awards in award season. Uh-huh. You yeah, know, I I think there's a lot of people that think there will be blood was robbed of its best picture title, and things like that. But one thing I will say, the score is better than No Country for Old Men. That is one way that I will put There Will Be Blood above that movie. Um, but at the end of the day, when I was finished watching this movie, uh, I was also somewhat unaffected by it the way that I was at the end of No Country for Old Men. I was kind of just like, what are you getting at here? Like, what are you, what are you really trying to tell me? Uh, and also, I think that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson has some issues with economy. Uh, he's a very long-winded filmmaker. I don't always know that that's necessary for him to uh, make an effective picture. I'm not saying that this movie's too long, but I'm saying it could have been shorter. Hey, David, I'll, let me throw it to you. Yeah. But I just okay. want to—I want to explore one thing that Carlos just talked about. That first, it was—it's an act. I looked at the time. Uh, time that timer on the movie what when does, when, thank you when does the dialogue really begin and it's the first full 20 minutes and that first 20 minutes you're looking at the setup of daniel Playview daniel plainview as a hard worker i mean he works hard to get that initial wealth it is not fun work. He didn't inherit it. He found that silver in that first mine, broke his leg, used that, we assume, to get the capital to start doing some more oil exploration. And then, but anyway, we're seeing beautiful cinematography, use of score uh, that we've already talked about. Yeah. Uh, there's no conniving machinations that we understand to get that initial wealth. But once he becomes wealthy and, and where I wanted to explore, and maybe David, I don't know if you want to go here or not. It's the deeper substance of these two characters. Daniel, Daniel has the most screen uh, time. Eli pops in and out. Eli, the preacher pops in and out, but certainly between these two men and the conflict between them, you're looking at two people that have very different motives but they're both deceptive i don't know if we want to go there there's about 10 themes in this film that i noted 
that we could potentially explore. Greed, capitalism, man versus nature, rich versus poor, masculine tox toxicity and violence in the absence of a female influence really in this movie at all. Mm -hmm. The vanishing mm -hmm. American frontier, the crippling power of ego. I mean, this movie's got so much crammed into it, which is yeah. probably why the running time is as long as it is. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm definitely uh, on on board with what you're saying, Joe. That I, I think this film, it kind of strips things down in a way that allows all of these really huge themes to kind of play out against this very. I mean, picturesque backdrop. I mean, some of the cinematography here, like, you know, that is, is just, you know, I remember watching this on a small screen now. I think this is maybe the first time I've seen it since I saw it in the theater, which is sad. I, I probably should have revisited before now. But I remember seeing this in the theater and being bowled over by the visual and sonic experience of it, the score, the look of the film, that long opening sequence with with very with almost no dialogue, just maybe some grunts and breathing, and you know, yeah, all of that to me that is a that's a cinema experience that I want to have on a regular basis. I want films that push the medium to places that it doesn't normally get to go. You know what I mean? It it didn't worry about not giving me enough of that exposition at the beginning. It just kind of plunges me into that shaft, you know, that mind shaft with him um, and, and see him scrambling and see him doing this stuff. Um, and that's all the character development you needed. And then he finds it and he's he's kind of on his way. I think all those themes that you, you touched on are there. I mean, the, the one that sucks me in the most is this kind of juxtaposition of the greed that drives him and this kind, this kind of, you know, the engine of capitalism that, mm -hmm. that is, that's sort of, driving plain view and they kind of strip him back so that he, that is what he is i mean he has this flirtation with familial attachment by taking on his son this you know dead worker's son uh hw and you see how easy that is to dispose of later <laughs> you know that that's uh not something that actually becomes a lasting attachment the only lasting attachment is this pursuit of wealth this pursuit of acquiring more and more power in you know in, in what he's doing um the total absence of women is is strange and that stood out to me even more so watching it this time than it did the first time where you're like it's a world kind of devoid of a lot of the normal kind of trappings of society i mean it's like totally removed it is it's like you say the disappearance of the frontier it's seeing yeah. these ridiculously um uh, uh, what's the word? Ridiculously over men with overinflated senses of self going out to the frontier to make their fortune, most of them dying in the process, but the very few, like Plainview, ascending that ladder and, and becoming something else. But that juxtaposed with Eli, the Paul Dano preacher character, who is, like Carlos said, probably even more unsettling in how he manipulates or attempts to manipulate the situation to his benefit by using religion as his sort of, you know, smoke and mirrors. I, I mean, is, is at least how I read it. And seeing this sort of uncomfortable <laughs> balance that gets struck, but then also tilted and then tilted back throughout the film between Plainview and Sunday as, as we see that go on. Okay, yeah, because we see Eli Sunday is – 
a sinister self-involved character we don't see it as much as we see it from daniel plainview but there's the scene where he's yelling at his father and he attacks Mm -hmm. him oh yeah and like that is clearly somebody that's motivated by self-interest yeah and but you know as you said he is using this veil of uh divinity to manipulate the people in his town and whatever right um there was something else that I was going to say that you said in there. You know, David, you were talking about the, that his motivation, Plainview's motivation, the greed is the, is just the accumulation of wealth, and he gets it. He's mm-hmm. got more money. He there is no happiness in the no. wealth that he is pursuing. It's an empty pursuit. That he's compromised every human relationship that he has for some of them earnest, some of them not so earnest. The fake half brother that shows up and turns out to be a uh, a ruse kills mm-hmm. kills him, and then I guess at that point he snaps from I have no family. I have mm-hmm. no. I have no partners in life to enjoy this with um uh, the scene that is the most a lot of people have um a lot of people in their memory is burned that last scene where eli comes back to go ahead before you talk about this because this was the thing i was gonna (laughs) this was the thing i was gonna talk about that i forgot about i was trying to jog your memory you're welcome go ahead thank you you did a great job so this is, you know, one of Daniel Day-Lewis's most iconic performances. He's fucking fantastic in it. And oh, God. the fits, like his, the outfits that he's got on, drip. <laughs> like the man looks, the man looks amazing throughout the film. Uh, that mustache. Even sweaty and covered in grease. Yeah. Yes, especially. Yeah. Uh, now, there is, there is something that I find interesting about society as a whole. And it is the things and that we can forgive certain people for that we can't forgive other people for. Or the things that is okay for this person to do, but if this person does it, this person is so much easier to shit on than this other person B is so much easier to shit on than person A. So they can both do the same thing or they can both, you know, reach certain levels of um, absurdity or whatever, but one person's easier to go after for it. And I think Daniel Day Lewis is a perfect example of person A who is a lot harder to shit on than other people are because the scene that Joe was just about to talk about where Eli comes back and Daniel Day-Lewis is giving this monologue about his straw going all the way across the room into his fucking milkshake. I swear to God, (laughs) that is the exact scene from Knock Knock uh, where Keanu Reeves is tied to the chair going, it was free fucking pizza! And he's just like screaming his head off and everyone's like, oh, this is so ridiculous. Or There are a ton of actors that have have delivered insane, totally ramped up, just unhinged performances, but other people are like, oh, that person sucks. They're such a shitty actor. Can you believe Blah, 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 but Daniel Day Lewis does it, and because that scene is crazy, like yeah. it is not super grounded or anything like that. And I think that if that were another actor, people would have been like, "Oh man, can you believe that? That was cra- That was yeah. so ridiculous. What he did well, was so stupid." You but. know, you're onto something. I think Carlos that there is definitely a certain subset of actors who are able to somehow ground their performance enough in this sense of it fits who they are 
whether on screen or, you know, who they are as an actual person or whatever, but it just fits well enough that you're willing to go there with, you know, I've seen Pacino pull it off sometimes. I've seen De Niro pull it off sometimes. I've seen, um, you know, to some extent, uh, you know, there's a handful of actors who I think can do this. I think Daniel Day-Lewis is one of them, right? Daniel Day-Lewis is one who you've, you've lived with him through those two plus hours of the film up to that point that, and and there's even been a little bit of an outburst there. I think the scene of him in the church, you know, I've abandoned my boy. I've been, you know, where where yeah. Eli is bullying him that's essentially. A, that's pretty. That's a pretty big performance. He's chewing yeah. some scenery there. Right. That. But it, it felt. It feels earned because you you have been there with him and you've seen this man's sort of again like a lot of it just a physical performance, but certainly you know once dialogue enters into it. And, and you buy it, I mean, because he just feels very grounded in this weird way that even though you're right, in isolation, especially if you're just going to watch those scenes, they would seem bonkers. And they do seem bonkers to an extent, but you can go there with him. Wasn't he just well, doing I, the I, church I, thing to get the land? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And that's, and but that's he, where but I, he drives that's, him to do this public, you know. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah. And that's where I was going earlier. Most people comment on, I, I drink your milkshake. Yeah. But to me, the Which most unsettling. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> but to me, the most unsettling scene is that baptism scene. See, we got yeah. there. Uh, and, and it could be my own upbringing and, and how I was raised in, the, in, in a church kind of thing. But I, I, I don't, I don't even think. A church or a church kind of thing? What's a church kind of thing? What's the difference? <sighs> Do you, do you want to extend the episode by another <laughs> half hour? I'm, I'm just going to move on. I'm just going to move on. No, um, yeah, you're right, uh, Carlos. He had all of the land except for a little island of land owned by Bandy. And Bandy, Bandy, comes, tracked, yeah. Bandy comes to him and says, I will give you the mineral rights to the land if you come to the church, become a member of it. And that's where we see the church uh, and uh, that hellfire brimstone uh, far, you know, far... Anyway, uh, and and he is, in my opinion, putting on the act required in that moment. He even says, so, okay, I'm done. Thank you. And then I think he walks out and whispers, I've got the land, yeah, if, if I recall. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't quite recall. But that, when uh, Eli is slapping him in the church, Eli is in the control position. Now, mm-hmm. fast, fast forward to the end. Clearly, Daniel Plainview has, has, a, has had a problem with this for a long, long time. And the verbal fisticuffs that occur before the fisticuffs occur is just fantastic. All of it. Script, all of it. And it's a, it's a nice way to, to, to tie all the film together. And I'm assuming there will be blood. It's Eli's blood in the bowling alley, maybe? Because he says, I'm finished. And the movie cuts, cuts to the title card. That, yeah, that so, was very interesting. Yeah, or, or is oil the blood, the, the life's blood of the economy? It's got to be will. both, right? Yeah, and yeah. Then, and there will be oil found by me, Daniel. Mm-hmm. If someone's yeah. going to bring in this well, it's going to be me. Yeah, yeah. There was a little bit of Sean Connery in that apology. <laughs> no, I no. Actually, you say that there is some Sean Connery in Daniel Day Lewis's performance. Or at least in yeah. his voice. <laughs> I really think that, is. I think yeah. that I think that he and Paul Thomas Anderson watched Treasure of the Sierra Madre together, if I remember that research piece. Yeah. Uh, and that um, John Houston was a big um, influence. 
or yeah, not as familiar uh, with that actor. I have to uh, say. Voice and and then Paul Dano. I mean, how much are you guys ready to see the Batman now? Oh, uh, yeah, he's going to be the Riddler. He's going to be the Riddler. Yeah, I like Paul Dano. I th- I, I, I really do too. I, I mean, I, I, everything he shows up in uh, was it Swiss Army Man a few years back. I remember being really impressed yeah, by wasn't that. Wasn't he carrying around Daniel Radcliffe's farting corpse in that movie? Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, and his his uh, turn as Brian Wilson, young Brian Wilson in Love and Mercy. I still was need really to watch good. that movie. Yeah. As much as I love Cusack, you think I would have seen it already? I know. He he's definitely somebody who I feel like kind of you know is r- right at that level where. You don't quite take, or I don't take him for granted, and then he pops up, and I'm like, oh wow, yeah, he's really good. He can, <laughs> he can pull this stuff off. So, um, so uh, I think a different actor had been hired, and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was not happy with the role, and called Paul Dana, who I think had four four days to prepare prior to his first scene. Wow, the scene where he's curing that woman's arthritis like a jackass uh, is is great performance. Oh yeah, but. All, I'm, I'm glad that I remembered this because that scene, I mean, I don't know if this is something that you associate with the Oscars, but I know I, for one, uh, the Oscars love it when somebody yells. They <laughs> fucking love it. To the, to the Academy, sure. yelling is acting. If you're not yelling, you're not acting, and you're not getting nominated for shit. <laughs> when I saw him, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is Oscar bait right here. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to fucking yell, and you're going to see the veins in my neck and my forehead, and they're going right. to give me well, that nomination. And, he, and they did give him the actor award. Yeah. So and it, it, They uh, fucking love that shit. It's such portion. <laughs> like, it is and it isn't. I mean, I think, I think this is a performance that is oscar worthy it is beyond I, even just the yelling yeah. and, and i think the yelling serves its purpose yeah. i mean i i know where you're coming from but i'm, but th- I think I'm thinking when i when i when i shit on the oscars for just loving yelling the first thing that comes to mind is leo and wolf of wall street that's the first thing the first i think thing of. it's just like he's not that great in that movie he just screams the whole time jonah hill's the one that should have gotten an oscar for that the first one that leaps to my mind is a uh, scent of a woman Lost me there. Uh, Al, Al Pacino. I would have taken a flamethrower to this place. <laughs> Plenty of yelling, and he won the Oscar. Well, that that might be a future episode right there. The best yelling performances. Or most <laughs> notable. Hey, hey before we move on, because I, I, I sense us wanting to taste this oily beer. Um, the, <laughs> the other thing that I really admire about this movie, and you really, I, I don't know, I've gotten into it the more times I've watched it, is the how it's made portion of the oil exploration and oil drilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the absence of modern technology, it's all manual labor. It's all, you know, there's no, you know, internet or, yeah, it is. Uh, the time that we take to get to that first oil strike and how it's meticulously done. I, I, I just enjoy almost every single aspect of this movie. No, I do enjoy, I do enjoy every single aspect of this movie. Yeah. It, it, I, I agree. There is something, I mean, the, the historical moment that this is capturing where oil suddenly becomes this huge piece of the economic pie. Right. Um, it, it's, it's pretty fascinating and it doesn't really delve as much into what that does to society as much as it does the minutia of where it goes. And you kind of, if you know the backdrop, if you know that, oh, th- this is what fueled the world. This is like the 20th century coming into being. And this is, you know, the rise of the automobile, the rise of all, you know, that 
you, you can kind of there, there's a weight to it that if you just kind of view it in isolation and, and don't think about that, it, it isn't necessarily there. So I don't know. I, I think this film operates on a lot of levels. You pointed a lot of them out, Joe, there with the, your listing of themes. I I appreciated that. And I think that uh, I, I think there there's definitely a lot going on. And it is a scene scenery chewing performance uh, by Lewis. But I think it, there are times when that's called for. And I think this is one of them. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, any of my criticisms of anybody chewing scenery or getting too big are more just in the way that people view these performances versus other performances sure. that I think are equally worthy of praise, but they get ridiculed because it's easy to ridicule and write off. I get it. <laughs> but we shouldn't also, lose sight of the but, subtle performances that are just as important. Yeah. And also, um, to go back to what we kind of talked about at the very beginning, I now I, I really do wish I would have seen this in a theater, you know, always most of what we talked about have been stunning visuals and whatnot but when that well is on fire goddamn that is yeah. a amazing scene when the oil is coming out and it's all on fire and it's fucking spraying in the air like yeah. that shit was crazy and yeah. yeah, his, his looked, assistant goes his assistant goes we got to put it out and daniel's like you're losing the point here yeah. we are now rich yeah, we just <laughs> of oil yeah uh, yeah he says that to to Mance Raider from Game yeah. of Thrones, who I had to spend a I spent a long time in this movie wondering who the fuck that guy was, and I finally looked <laughs> it up, and I was like, oh yeah, I know him from Game of Thrones. Um, Fantastic pair of movies, guys. That's what a fun, what a fun episode. And to cap off both movies, from my perspective uh, of having just viewed them for the first time, the last there will be blood. I watched this morning, and. Um, no Country for Old Men I watched last night. I I think that I did suffer a little bit from waiting so long to see these because the hype for these movies is real. Like, I mean, sure. people put these... I mean, people... Yeah. Have, these are like five-star movies across the board for almost okay. everybody. And so to live up to those kinds of expectations is difficult no matter what. And so I think that, yeah, I just had the bar set. Like I was like, these movies are going to fucking change my life. <laughs> and that didn't well, necessarily happen, yeah. but I, they were, they are both very good despite the well, fact that maybe I wasn't left as like shaken right. as I wanted to be or whatever. But I'm glad to hear you say that. I think that, um, there, there is something to, you know, these films do have huge reputations that they bring along with them. Um, that, you know, they were critically lauded then and since I think have probably only grown in esteem. Uh, but it, but it is interesting because they are both, we've used the term slow burning. They're both films that are very kind of deliberately paced, mm -hmm. very, um, you know, I, I feel like to really appreciate them, you have to let yourself get fully involved with them and sort of sucked into them. And I do think both of them, I remember fondly my experiences in the theater, and I think there's good reason for that. I think these are films that really benefit from cinema projected on a screen in a dark room where you really just, you know, sort of focus on it and take in that experience versus trying to watch it on my smaller screen in my living room and all the distractions of modern life surrounding me. I abandoned my boy. <laughs> okay so did you abandon this beer joe as we were talking yeah. about Michael David. that was way better I, than what i was gonna say all right good we picked two of the finest films of the 2000s to review today and uh, the pairing was was incredible i gotta tell you the first thing i want to say is the pairing of this porter 
next to that rhubarb uh, Berliner, mm-hmm. sometimes one beer will undo the second beer when we have our episodes. We don't mean uh-huh. we don't we don't mean for that to be intentional. These two beers go real well together back to back. One does not overpower the other. They complement one another. This is a mighty fine porter, and I'm glad that we found a new brewery in Austin. I can't wait for us to be able to be free to travel, uh, go to a bar, and I I can't wait to get to this brewery. I I didn't even know that it existed prior to today. Yeah, it's exciting for me. Anytime we... You know, get to taste something new from a new brewery, which is, you know, can't get much newer than having opened in 2020. Um, that, that's pretty exciting stuff. I think this is a solid porter. I mean, we, we've kind of stumbled uh, into, you know, the, these categories we're forming. You know, we, we have those beers that just kind of deliver on the style in a way that is very satisfying. It's not like trying to add some bells and whistles our first beer this episode did that right i mean a strawberry strawberry rhubarb pie berliner it's taking this basic idea of a berliner and kind of building these things on top of it this porter is a solid porter it's very very tasty very easy to drink um i could do with a tiny bit more body but that's a small small thing i mean i'm it's very easy to drink and i'm enjoying it i'm i'm excited to have some more from uh hop squad I enjoyed this porter a great deal. I am not going to um, count the body against it in any way because the only way in my brain that I can differentiate a porter and a stout is a porter being slightly lighter in body. <laughs> you you like uh, the lighter porter, all right. If it's a little lighter, that just helps me make heads or tails of what the difference between the two is uh, right. since it's a very kind of gray area. It is, um, it is. But yeah, I really, I mean, I again, you know, you guys said it. It is a straight up porter. It's nice and roasty. Uh, it's um, it's not it's not thin, but it's definitely not super thick or uh, or anything like that. It's a sipper for sure. You're not gonna toss these back in a hundred and five degree heat index or anything like that. Um, but I mean, I know it's y'all's first foray into hop squad this is my third from them and i have mm-hmm. not been let down by any of them so far everything that's I've had great from to them hear. has been pretty hang solid. in there hang in there hop squad this is going to be over someday <laughs> that's right and and we'll try to get up there to at least get some uh curbside here uh yes hopefully that can happen um now have you had anything from Wildworks or Hop Squad? You have most likely, if you're listening to this podcast, seen these films. Uh, so mm. tell us what you thought about them. You can find us on Twitter at Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer and a Movie, and Facebook.com slash Beer and Movie TX. Beer and Movie Podcast.com is where you can find a link to listen to all of our past episodes. Uh, this is episode 98. There are 97 other ones for you to listen to if you haven't uh, done that yet. And we encourage you to do so because episode 100 is just over the horizon. And we are very excited about that. Also, if you are a Corpus Christian, uh, Rebel Toad is releasing their um, um, offering in the Black is Beautiful campaign started by Marcus at Weathered Souls. Uh, So if you're listening to this close to the release date, Saturday is going to be the day you can get 
black is beautiful or their chocolate hazelnut variant that they did uh, there's two different ones coming out so definitely go support the fine folks over at rebel toad those are the homies mm-hmm. And I am very excited to uh, try that. It's been a while. The last stout that I had from Hector was the Night Creature, and that was like a 12.5% Imperial Stout. And it was pretty good. It was it dangerous, was. but it was pretty good. And so I'm uh, I'm excited to get another stout out of him. So we'll see. Uh, we'll report back to you guys once we get a chance to try that one. I, I, we're, we've begun really in earnest creating what we want that hundredth episode to be. It just comes out in what three weeks? Uh, there's this episode, one more, and then hundred. So okay, two yeah. two weeks. So I guess two, like two weeks, weeks by the time this is out. Stay mm-hmm. tuned, my friends. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, um, very excited about that one. Also, fucking crazy that we've. I mean, that's a lot of episodes. It is. It's a lot of episodes. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure we have a lot to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So until next time, I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. <laughs>